Acts chapter 17. We'll begin reading in verse 15. Acts chapter 17, verse 15. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. And I'll be reading out the New King James Version. God's Word declares, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something, some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor does he worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and men's devising, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, of the, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Well, this morning, we have already had a time in God's Word uh, that's going to reflect upon some of what we are going to be touching on this service. We are working our way through Acts, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, as I said last week. I started it last week, and it's going to bring into this week. Really, last week wasn't jumping ahead. It was tying a bridge, uh, a thematic bridge, through uh, several passages that really were uh, taking us back into the events around Cornelius, included Lydia and the uh, Philippian jailer, and it's going to extend into Corinth in chapter 18. We wanted to set a theological framework for uh, the missionary movement of the church, for the uh, bringing of the gospel to lost, and our expectations and the theological requirements of choice, and why we do that. And certainly, we acknowledge wholeheartedly God's role, uh, particularly through the Holy Spirit, um, through His Word, and through His people. Um, to reach the lost. And his design, his desire, his will, is that all men come to repentance and that he will uh, convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so, today we want to see it applied in one instance uh, that is somewhat unique. It is not entirely unique. We are going to have some access later on in the book of Acts to Paul's uh, engagement with uh, the kings of the Roman rulers, if you will, of, of Israel during this time. 
Um, but we're going to uh, really see a fairly unique uh, presentation of God's Word. And uh, I want to kind of set a, a framework here a little bit uh, so we can see um, how some of the books of our Bible, including Hebrews that we studied this morning, fit together here. Obviously, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. Um, that's the Hebrew people. There isn't a city called Hebrew. It is written to the, to the scattered tribes of the nation of Israel. And we see in it a very carefully constructed argument for the necessity and for the benefit of Jesus Christ. That it is necessary that we have this new covenant because the old covenant wasn't really uh, sufficient. It had a purpose as a master, as a teacher, but not as a deliverer. It really pointed forward to one who would be the sacrifice, who would be the priest. And it is that one that uh, uh, we looked for that was there in the prophets. And so when we look at the book of Hebrews, we really see, uh, I think, a a quintessential uh, presentation that would be given in a synagogue. Remember, that was Paul's methodology, was to go into the synagogue. As we have him come into Athens, we find him uh, engaging uh, several different kinds of people. And uh, I, I think certainly Hebrews gives us a very uh, powerful presentation of what would be typical of his Sabbath by Sabbath by Sabbath engagement with the, the men and women and even to some degree, the proselytes in the synagogues. And in addition to that, there were also God-fearing Gentiles. Some were proselytes, some that would be allowed in the synagogue. Uh, Some were just God-fearing ones who hadn't really converted, hadn't made that commitment, hadn't engaged in that, um, in circumcision and in in the baptism into uh, Judaism um, and into keeping the whole law. But they recognized the truth, the, the veracity of this Jehovah and, the, and, the, and what was wrapped up in the, the message of the synagogue. And I, I believe the book of Romans, I think, is probably a great representation of how Paul would seek to reach them. These are Gentile people, by and large, although Romans certainly engages the self-righteous Jew as well. Um, I don't, I'm not discounting that, uh, but certainly the focus, the attention is to reach these who have a, a, a contact with God's word, that have a reference point in terms of the scriptures and of, and of the idea of a Messiah, of a deliverer, of a Christ, of the anointed one. And so we have uh, his representation, his presentation really of here's the message that I want you to know. Um, you who have heard the gospel uh, in Rome, um, and even a church there, uh, we know that he's writing largely to believers, but here's my message that I would give to those who have that, that uh, point of contact. And so, when we come to verse 17 of chapter 17 in Acts, uh, we find him saying, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with uh, the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. And so he's engaging people wherever he goes. Um, and, and central in each one of these messages, uh, we, see, we saw in Hebrews this morning, did we not, did we not see the centrality of the necessity of an eternal high priest? One according to the order of Melchizedek, one who is forever in that role and needs no replacement, uh, he, he, he's not going to wear out. He is going to be there. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And he now lives always available as our mediator, as our deliverer, as our anointed Christ. And so we find um, this central theme in the very middle of Hebrews is we have this high priest, one who has been perfected by being delivered from the dead. And now offer salvation to others in there to perfect them, that they might uh, worship him, know him, have life in him, and serve him. And then, of course, in Romans, we have a very clear central idea of Christ as the resurrected one. And while there's a, 
certainly focus on both books upon his death and the power of his blood to deal with the sin debt that we carry. Um, it is the power of the miraculous that Christ rose from the dead that is the basis of recognizing that his sacrifice was sufficient, it was acceptable, it was holy, it was efficacious. That it wasn't vain or worthless or empty. That it wasn't just another rebel, political rebel out there in the Roman Empire who was uh, thrown on a cross one day. But it was unique that he stood out as the innocent one whose sacrifice was not for his own sin, but for others, as Isaiah describes the suffering servant. And that as such, he was accepted by God, and the evidence of that is in the resurrection. And so he's engaging the community of Athens in the synagogue with the Jews, with Gentile worshipers, whether inside or outside, and even in the marketplace daily with whoever happened to be there. In the midst of all of that, he encounters uh, this one particular group. I don't want to divorce them too much from the marketplace people, um, but Luke does distinguish them, shall we say that, from them. For in the marketplace, you're going to encounter all kinds of people from all levels of uh, education, all levels of economic uh, access, all both slave and free for him in Athens, um, he would have encountered all of those. Uh, and we find that um, it gets the attention of one particular group within the marketplace who we are told are the Epicureans, uh, who are those philosophers who considered their role in society and the benefit that they have in society. And, and for themselves, there's a selfish element there, I think, of engaging in... Um, the exchange and the development of ideas. And Paul is going to be invited to address them particularly. But I want you to notice what solicited this invitation to address them. In verse 18, at the very end of the verse, it says... He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Central to his message, whether it be in the synagogue, with the guys outside the synagogue, with just regular people in the marketplace, what he keeps encountering, what he keeps central to his message is this resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And that got everyone's attention. Maybe because it's so unbelievable that someone like Paul, someone with so much training, so much education, and able to reason so well with so many different kinds of people, would believe in such a ridiculous thing that someone rose from the dead. Well, we've got to hear this out. We want to we fully explore this one with this guy. And so we come into his presentation. Before we do so, let's go over in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to study your word, and we pray for your spirit's direction and guardianship over this time. You might lead us in your truth and guard us from error. That what is said might be in conformity with your word, that we might recognize its authority, and thus surrender ourselves to it. Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the miraculous, throwing that into, in fact, the unbelievable, and throwing that into our approach and our evangelism um, is of absolute necessity, I would contend. We have already looked at the necessity of confronting men with the fact that they are sinners, that God is holy that they are disqualified from his presence, and certainly that is necessary, absolutely necessary. Um, 
but within all the engagements with the world, and I'm talking about the world that is ignorant of God's Word. Um, when we talk about the Jews of the Son of God, we talk about the Gentile, God-fearing people like Cornelius. Now, when we talk about, um, even when we, we look at Stephen and dealing with this different synagogue of Greek-speaking people, they all had a basis within God's Word. Even in the letter to Romans, there's evidence that certainly these people had a foundation of authoritative Scripture and some access to it. Um, now we have, and certainly that was true of the Samaritans and others, um, even in Jesus with the Samaritan woman, we see that she had some ideas about what was the history of Israel and God's redemptive uh, work there. Um, some of it was miskewed, was skewed and, and, and uh, a misinformation, but it was uh, nonetheless, there's something there. But we engage individuals who, or society as at large, that are, have a profound ignorance over the scriptures, over the person of Jesus Christ, uh, and over the redemptive work of God, uh, where do we start? Where do we end? And how do we make that happen? Unless you think this only happens somewhere in the jungles of South America or in the savannas of Africa, I want to warn you a little bit. Probably many of your younger neighbors have such ignorance. that largely they have no concept of really who Jesus is. They only know him as a swear word. They have really no understanding of the redemptive work of God. They cannot rehearse for you any of the history of the Bible that they haven't seen on a movie screen. Let alone engage you in terms of things that they have not themselves experienced. And such are the kind of people we are approaching here in Athens. But there's another layer of understanding who Paul's speaking to here. And that other layer is um, what we might refer to today as academia, uh, although academia has gone much farther uh, afield than these men uh, from even recognizing just uh, the innate uh, Knowledge of deity. We have gone even farther away from that. That there, there is godness out there. Uh, we are seeing some of that return, and we're going to talk about that when we look in his message. Uh, we're going to see some returning to that, and that's kind of exciting for us. Um, and and uh, we'd like to see it in penetrate uh, more of our culture. But we are seeing this this return to the idea that there is. Uh, an unmoved mover, that there is a, an intelligence, there is a first cause um, that uh, uh, we need to recognize. And, and so these individuals, though, were, wanted to discuss things on this intellectual level and, uh, and to keep it there. They, 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 the evidence is that they wanted to, they, they weren't, they were recognizing the divine. But uh, it still had to be the divine and in terms of human experience. That is, the gods acted a lot like us, just with a lot more power. And they had to deal with all the same immorality and unfaithfulness, and, and all the gods acted just like we did, or we do. Um, and when you look through the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, and you see these gods and their behaviors, their characteristics, the, they lust, they, they covet, they, they, they are um, disappointed, they are, they are cursed, they, they, they experience basically all the attributes and the failings and the, and the sicknesses, the, the sinful diseases of the heart that we possess. They just manifest them in this other realm. Well, now we come to a guy who's talking about someone very different, who doesn't share our sinful qualities at all. Someone who is totally and radically distinct. And here he is going to share him. And then, 
beyond all of this, is going to declare a radical, miraculous event of the resurrection. And, by, by the way, I, I think I can demonstrate from God's Word, cover to cover, that this is one of the means that we must need, must use <laughs> to get the attention and to draw the audience of those who are ignorant of Christianity, of Jesus Christ, of the Gospel. Um, one of my favorite little stories out of the Old Testament, and, and my, one of my favorite little missionaries, um, and my family knows this because I preach this sermon every week for a year, just different churches. But my kids and my wife got to hear the same thing over and over again, the poor people. Um, that's why I feel so, you know, I, yeah, I pray for Caleb. He's got to hear his dad every time for years. Boy, um, my kids know how bad that is just for one year. My favorite little account is of a girl, we don't even know her name. Nameless girl. She's an Israelite girl. Northern tribe of Israel uh, suffered brutal things. Um, probably saw her family slaughtered. Was carried away a slave. A captured enemy. And was put into the servitude of a soldier, a high-ranking soldier's wife. And she comes to, come to, to be told that this soldier has contracted leprosy. Now you know who I'm talking about. Naaman. And this gal says a profound thing. She doesn't tell him about the redemptive work of God through Moses and the history of Israel. She doesn't rehearse all of that. She doesn't go through the theology of deliverance, of, of all of the sacrifices and what they point to. She doesn't engage any of that. She confronts him with this impossible statement. She confronts him with the miraculous, says, I know who can heal you. Of leprosy? Yeah, there's a prophet in my land. If you go to him, he'll heal you. He tells, she tells her mistress. The wife tells Naaman. Naaman says, well, let's consider this. And her, his first confrontation with really, or first encounter with the God of Israel outside of war is a little girl telling him the impossible can be done by this God. Of course, you know the rest of the story. Naaman headed down there, says, uh, you know, is told by the prophet, oh, go wash in the, not by the prophet, by the prophet's servant, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be cleansed. And, and he doesn't want to do it. He's offended by the simplicity. Isn't that interesting? We kind of might think that that's the reverse here in Athens, that, that they are offended by the miraculous and they should be understanding of the simplicity. But I will continue with you that it was Paul's statement about the miraculous, about the resurrection, that got their attention. They want to know, how do you conquer death? Just as much as Naaman wanted to know, how do I beat this disease? How can I be healed of this life-threatening disease? They want to know that. They want to know that there is that kind of power out there that can raise a man from the dead. They really do. What they're offended by is the re simple requirements. Name and simple requirements. Let's go wash the Jordan. Is that dirty river? There's nothing special about that river. We've got better rivers back where I come from, up in Assyria. Finally, one of his fellow underlings, one of his soldiers says, you know, it's not a hard thing to do, jump in the river seven times. I mean, and if he told you to do something great, wouldn't you do that? Well, of course, because then that feeds our pride. The simplicity of the requirement means that there's a power outside yourself that's going to do that work. 
There was a power outside of Naaman that was going to clean, cleanse him. That wasn't going to be Naaman's work to achieve it. It was going to be the work of God on his behalf. He was going to be the recipient of it. So Naaman goes in and does the simple task of washing himself. Comes out the seventh time with baby's skin. If you want to know what that is, go visit Samuel after the church service and you'll see what Naaman's skin felt like when he came out of the Jordan the seventh time. I think God gives him that skin so we just can't ever put him down. Paul's message of the resurrection, as unbelievable as it sounds, is the hook. It's the bait. It's the it, it's the attraction. It's the it's the it's the wow that our marketers are trying to come up with in every commercial that you watch is they're trying to get those wow effect to get your attention, to get your get your uh, focus and your and and your thoughts generating there. And that's what got the Epicurean's attention is this guy is talking about something nobody else offers. Nobody else talks about it. Nobody else considers it uh, worth, worth uh, including in their theology. No other God offers it. This is incredible, this resurrection thing. We want to hear the full story. We've heard the rumors that you are teaching that a man has been raised from the dead and is still alive and will live forever. Conquering sin and death for all time. Not just like Lazarus, who was raised and then slept again, but rather one who, by the power of God alone, was raised from the dead and lives today. That he is alive today. We want to hear this. And Paul is ready to engage them. But we know because of other texts and other uh, engagements that the real difficulty um, really is in the simple message of uh, there's no great feat for you to do but to humble yourself before God. And that's offensive. Because for all of our lives we have been propped up by our pride. And we have trusted that most more than anything. And so we see Paul now coming to this body that it has no contact that we know of with Jesus. Um, very limited, if any, with, with Judaism. And they want to know, what is this new teaching of which you speak? We want to know the whole story. And beginning in verse 22, we have this message recorded for us. And if you go to Mars Hill in Greece today, you will have this message in is it two or three languages? Um, in bronze, in the rock of Mars Hill today. And you can go read it in Greek, in English, and something else. I thought there was a third language that it's in. And so you can go there today, the base of Mars Hill, and this message still is there. Engraved in bronze for all to read. Every visitor. I'm not sure that the United States would allow it on any of our public buildings, but in Greece, this sermon is confronts everybody as soon as they approach Mars Hill. Big thing, multiple languages. This is Paul's message on this hill. By the way, there are no other plaques comparable to that of what any of the other teachers taught. We don't know anything about these other gods. We don't have any quotes by the Epicureans. None of those are there, but Paul's message is there today. Now, that should get your attention a little bit at least, I would think. And so here we go. Here's the message. The message is, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious. And oh, they were. They had lots of gods. He says, I was passing through because any object of worship, I even found an altar to this inscription to the unknown God. And we begin, he begins by addressing the idea of deity, the idea that there is a God. And uh, unfortunately, in our society, we have to almost go back and start there um, 
for Paul, he thought they had many gods, um, and we are really getting into mo- almost an a, a attitude that there is no God. But yet, in our heart of hearts, and as we engage people, um, it is not difficult to, to really, if we are reasoning with them, to reason them to the point of recognizing that there is deity, there is God out there. The problem is that they want to define him, him themselves. And these people were so concerned about covering all the bases that they even had an idol to the unknown God, whoever, in case we missed anybody. Um, by the way, this would be a great message in India. <laughs> Any Hindu with all their gods and gods and gods and gods. And all they want to do is add Jesus to the list. And Jesus' claim is very distinct. And so Paul begins to introduce now, um, I want to declare to you the God that you've missed, the God that you don't know about. I want, you're ignorant. Isn't that a scary thing for someone to tell you? You're ignorant. Um, boy, that uh, is a, to, to a <laughs> scholastic group, to an academic group, <laughs> That's about the biggest insult you can give, isn't it? Don't you think? To go into an academia circle and say, oh, you're ignorant of the real God. That's essentially what Paul's done. He's walked into him and said, you have this thing to an God, and I'm here to declare him to you because you don't know him. Ignorance isn't stupidity. It's not low intelligence. It means I, have, I don't know this information. We walk up and we say, listen, there's someone you don't know. There's something you don't know that you haven't conceived of, that you haven't considered, that you haven't been exposed to. And I'm going to proclaim them to you. And when we confront the world, we find how Paul begins. He begins verse 24. How do we introduce him? And we find he is introduced by the Creator. Creator of the world and of life itself. And that he is not designed by men but he is the designer of men. That we did not make him, but he made us. That we cannot control him, but he can control the world. It is not for us to make him, but to seek him. And so Paul confronts them with a radical difference. Not with the typical arguments that we might try to use, but with a radical argument. First of all, that this is the God who has created all that exists. And this has been under assault um, for most of my lifespan. The assault on God as our creator. Uh, in, in almost every area of science. Um, but we, as I said, we are, we are seeing this shift um, very gradual and, and it's not trickling down very quickly um, because there are some other elements involved. And if that bothers you that some scientists, high-ranking scientists are writing saying um, biological evolution couldn't have occurred, um, I am a molecular chemist and I can't make it happen. Uh, I don't see if I can't make it happen with all we know about building molecules. How in the world did it happen by accident? So we have high-ranking, highly educated, highly trained scientists that are saying these things. You will never hear it at school. Your children will never be exposed to that in the public school system, even in the college level. You will not be exposed to that. Um, And if that bothers you, by the way, um, realize that in Christendom we're just as guilty of this lag. Um, Look in the back of your Bibles and find out where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. We've known for over 40 years that it wasn't where your map shows it. We know that it wasn't the Sea of Reeds, and we know that Mount Sinai isn't on the Sinai Peninsula, but it's in Arabia because the Bible says so, and we know the crossing of the Red Sea was at Nueva Beach, and we have the evidence, and it conforms with all of God's Word, and we've known that since the 70s. And still, your Bibles will not correct themselves. Why? 
I don't know. Because once error seems to get rooted, it's really hard to get it out, mostly of the lowest levels. The access to the lay person. So we see the attack, but we see it shifting, and we, and we recognize that the more science that is being done, the more discovery that is made, the more intense and, and deeply we, we, we work on things and, and look at them, and the more we, we examine them and consider them, uh, we, the more we come to a conclusion this could not have been by accident. And we have groups of intelligent design people who are unwilling to really say it was God, but there was a god nest out there. There was some intelligent one. And of course, we all recognize that that leads you right to the Bible. So there is that shift, but it's slow and it's not going to trickle down very quickly. Um, but we need to still confront people with this is the God that creates and, and groups like Answers in Genesis and other uh, that, that try to engage the world on an apologetic level over this issue of creation versus evolution. Um, they are seeking uh, that to, to keep that door open or we can come in and say, this God, that we all recognize there, there has to be some source of, of values. There, we, we, where do our morals come from? Why do we all think lying is wrong? And as I tell the teens, why do we all wear clothes? Where do those morals come from? And so on a, on a philosophical level, on a scientific level, um, and even to some degree uh, on a personal, intimate level, we recognize that there is some deity. And what we come with people with this declaration that there is this phenomenal thing God has done. We begin to introduce that now. We've got their attention with the radical now let's introduce to you he's the one that created it all. And we're not making anything here. We're not fashioning any, any statues. We are not uh, making any figurines. We are not uh, making any bracelets or I know we all wear necklaces with the crosses and all that. We're not worshiping the cross. <laughs> We've got a few of them here. Um, we, we don't have any of these relics and icons they are not our gods. And many of them are not really even accurate representations of what we believe. We want to introduce them to a living God who has created all, that is the author of life, that is active and engaged, and that is righteous does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is far above us. And yet, has chosen to love us. And then Paul does something that I think all of us should be educated well enough to be able to do. And that is, listen, our own poets know it. Now, I know most of you are out of school and so literature class isn't important to you anymore which means you have to take some personal initiative and get out there and realize that um, there are some historical poets that have said some pretty interesting things that have some serious biblical significance. Even Shakespeare on occasions has some pretty brilliant things to say uh, that fit the message that we are declaring. I know that a lot of them also include fairy stories and stuff like that, granted. But we can still access them. And so he comes and he says, listen, there's even some evidence in your own history. Now remember, we're talking about the history of the Greeks. Their last significant contact with Israel was Alexander the Great. And, the, and out of the uh, four generals in their and the engagement with Jerusalem was pretty much negative. I mean, the first desolation of the temple was, was under Antiochus Epiphanes, which, is, which was a, one of the Greek families. And so that was their last contact, was way back there. Now these ones are confronted with this creator God. 
And so Paul doesn't reference the Old Testament. He says, you know, you even have some of your good thinkers have even acquiesced to this. They have made some statements. I'm not going to buy into everything they have, but here's some other statements. It says, you know, we live and move and have our being. He says in verse 28, as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. We are the offspring of God. That there is a, a, a progenitor, that there, is a, that there is a beginning, there is one who has, who has made us, that we um, uh, can, can trace ourselves back and see the activity of God in the creation of the first couple and then the genesis there that occurred, and not in terms of the book, but the meaning of the word, that the beginnings that started there and as procreation occurred, it comes down to us that we are still dependent upon this one true and living God. This must be part of our message to the unsaved world who have little contact with the scriptures. We must be able to reason with them in this fashion. And then to define not only who God is, but who he is not. And I've already kind of referenced this. Paul's already done so, but he says, listen, the divine is not something you make with your hands. It's not something you're going to fashion out of metal or stone. That's ignorance. That, that, that was the past. That was back when, <laughs> uh, essentially, you were spiritually uncivilized. Which is, again, look at who he's talking to. This, is, this could be very offensive, but this doesn't offend them. They're willing to accept this, and they're willing to consider that, well, maybe we haven't had it right all this time. That part doesn't seem to offend them. They don't cut him off there. He's saying, listen, you've been ignorant. The, the way you've been talking about, you, you made your gods, and you guys all know it. You fashioned them, and you gave them your ills and your errors and, and you, you try to explain natural phenomenon by them having battles and, and arguments up there in, in Mount Olympus and, and you, you, you did all that. Come on. We can go down to the shop and see the guy making the silversmith and see him making the idols, right? You didn't go out there and dig in the dirt and suddenly this god popped out fully formed. Right? So let's just get past the ignorance that we're making gods. Let's get past that. Let's stop being so <laughs> primitive. Interesting that one of the accusations against Christendom is that, you know, oh, you're one of those people that believes in the fantasies of God's word, the fairy tales. Yes, I do. Because they have more proof than anything that they're putting out. I love when they try to confront me with, oh, the story of Noah, that's just the Gilgamesh. Legend. I was like, oh, really? You have any evidence of... How much evidence is there of that legend? There's one or two documents. They weren't written by Gilgamesh. Weren't written within the millennia of Gilgamesh. And they trust that rather than this book. With all the evidence, we have all the documentation, all the, the intense uh, work, biblical bibliological work that has been done on it. Now, who's believing fairy tales? You who place your trust on documents that are error and copies and very limited, or we who place our trust in a book that you can't prove false? By the way, it's easier to prove something untrue than true. So when anybody confronts you about proving the resurrection true, just ask them, prove it false. True? Wouldn't that have been easy? Wouldn't it have been easy to shut up the church in the first decade of the church? The first year of the church? In Acts chapter 2, wouldn't it have been easy to shut down Christianity? Because the central message was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A phenomenal statement. What had to happen just to disprove that? Produce a body. Here he is. He didn't rise from the dead. Here it is. What a simple thing. They had enemies. They had those that didn't want to hear that. But yet they could not resist it. They couldn't resist the reasoning. They couldn't 
resist the evidence. They couldn't stand against it on its own merit. And so they formed lies. They beat people. They, they killed people. All trying to quiet a message that they couldn't prove false. And so Paul's just confronting them with this. Then he comes in to verse 30 and following. After the ignorance, God's overlooked that now. Now let, let's move into uh, reality. Let's leave your primitive, um, self-designed religions and let's come into um, dealing with the one true and living God who has shown his power and might every day. He's overlooking and he's giving you a pass on your past. But now, you can't walk away from here and claim, I didn't know. He says, now God commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Of course, this is Jesus Christ. He has given assurance. And this is an interesting statement. He's given assurance of this. You're, because of the resurrection is true and you can't prove it false um, and in fact there's a lot of evidence it's one of the historical events that, that almost easier to prove than a lot of other things in fact we're at, believe it or not we can almost prove the resurrection easier than we can prove the holocaust the Arabs claim it never happened it was all staged that's going on today They've challenged that for years. We could have that much evidence of the resurrection. It says, now it's time to respond. This is the assurance that because there's a resurrected Jesus in heaven today, this is the assurance. Of what? That a judgment is coming and you're going to have to answer to him. We know there's a living God. He's not like us. He is distinct from us. He created us. We do not create Him. We do not fashion Him, but He fashioned us. We do not keep Him alive. He keeps us alive. And He has a standard. And we don't meet that standard. So He is calling all men to repent. Stop choosing to be ignorant of Him and His redemptive work. And He has one person He has sent. And we know that he is who he says he is. Of all the other evidence we have in the Gospels and the fulfilled prophecy, that ultimate proof is the resurrection. Because he rose from the dead, we know that his message is true, it is divine, it is authoritative. Wow. Now what? We have this assurance God, by raising Jesus from the dead, has assured us that there will be a judgment of the world. It will be done with justice and righteousness by Christ. It has been ordained by God. That is, it has been set aside. It has been determined. The one who decides the times and pre-appointed them and the boundaries. Remember that earlier in the message? I didn't talk about it much. That God who ordained and appointed all these times, the times of, of Christ's coming, the times of deliverance, the times of salvation... And the boundaries for nations, dwellings, that guy has given you an assurance. That assurance is you're going to be judged. You can choose to be ignorant and he will judge you because he's been raised from the dead. And now it's come full circle. The truth that got their attention at the beginning, the claim that precipitated the invitation is now the thing that they're going to balk at. And I would contend with you, it's not really the resurrection they have that much of a problem with. It's what it means going back through the cycle of the message that they just heard. Because once you find out that this resurrection... Well, first of all, the offer that of, of not dying, of having eternal life, is a pretty sweet offer. Would you agree with that? That's a pretty sweet offer. 
Eternal life. Yeah, I like that. Sounds great. Count me in. Oh, wait. I mean, I can't just keep on doing the things I like to do and the way I've done it always. And I have to conform myself and I have to answer to a judge. Uh, That's a real downer. That's going to cramp my style. I'm not sure that I want that so much anymore. And so now the very thing that got the invitation now becomes the stumbling block. Because now it's not just an offer, it's also an accountability. You see, at the onset, it was about how can I get eternal life? And now, at the, at the back end of this whole presentation of the gospel, we realize if you're saying that if I don't accept this guy that he's going to judge me. And look at the negative statements. He's like, you don't know him. Uh, You um, didn't understand the divine nature. Uh, You were ignorant. And now you can't claim that. Now you're going to stand accountable for this message that you have heard. And every visitor to Mars Hill in modern times stands under that same condemnation. And they will be judged by the one whom Paul speaks of and the proof of it is that he has been raised from the dead and he will be the one we must answer to. And that men do not want. Do not want to be accountable to the one true and living God. They want a fat daddy in the sky that will give them whatever their heart desires and among them eternal life with no real expectations. We find that when we call to humble ourselves, to repent, to turn from ignorance and sin to the righteous, true and living God, Jesus Christ, as the only way, as the singular person who was raised from the dead, you have a choice. And this is the power of Easter, is this choice. And we see it in verse 32, as they chose. Some will mock. You believe that fairy tale. Because they don't want to study it out. They don't want to investigate it. By the way, they could have very easily investigated it. You know why? Because there were still people alive who had seen Jesus alive at this point. They could have gone. If they really, I mean, just think about it. your eternal life is in jeopardy, is, is at stake here. It would have been an easy thing. These are the wealthiest people of Athens. It would have been an easy thing for them to get on a boat, go a little bit across the Mediterranean, visit this place, interview, and find out if this has any credence to it. I say, that's an awful lot to expect out of them. No, it's not really. And in fact, some people did it. And we have record of such uh, pilgrimages to see if there was truth to this statement. So we find that they just mocked it. Others said, we'll consider it some more. Perhaps among them were some who wanted to go investigate it. And I always, always encourage people, if you don't think this is true, you investigate it. You go out there, do the research, do the legwork. You prove it wrong or right. You do it. I've done it. I've, I've, in my life, not just by my personal experience, you investigate the claims of God's Word, which means you've got to get into God's Word and find out what it claims, and then you've got to go out there and see if there's evidence of it. And guess what happens? Many, many times, these are the ones who come to know Christ and are some of the biggest advocates of this investigation. You know one of them is Josh McDowell. Written many, many books on apologetics. And it all began because he was challenged. He wanted to prove it all wrong. And he was going to take it upon himself to do the legwork and once and for all put a stake in the heart of Christianity. And the easiest thing to do was to prove the resurrection didn't happen and he could finish it all. And he could not do it. And his conclusion was, this is the truth. This is God. I must submit to him. And he accepts Christ as a Savior. He's one of the biggest apologetics of our modern era. So, 
encourage people, go out there, do what these men were going to do. Hear you again on this matter. We're going to think about it. We want to investigate it a little bit. And, and I'm all for that. Because I know where that's going to go if they're honest in their investigation. And lastly, we find some who joined him and believed. And this is wonderful. And among them, there's a named man who was one, apparently, one of the leading men of this sect of people. He was the Areopagite, Dionysius, who was one of those Epicureans, one of those men who sat up there and he gave it an honest hearing and he, and he saw the truth of it and he recognized and he was willing to humble himself and maybe he had been the one who had been groping all along as Paul says, you're just groping, in, at least grope in the dark for it. Grope, I mean, the fact is, is that your neighbors, your co-workers, your, your, your peers at, at school, they are groping in the dark for truth. How dare you leave them in the dark? Now, if they reject the light because it makes them hurt their eyes, that's their problem. But if you never turn the light switch on, that's your fault. Your responsibility is to give them some light to attract them to this message. And Paul's on this hill, and you might say, man, there's only two people named. One guy and one gal. But then there are some others we don't, with them. Um, in other words, those two people had some influence over other people, and because those two came to Christ, others with them came to Christ. Kind of like what we saw last week when he says, and your household, others with them. But you reach this one person, and they have these individuals who respect and, and recognize this is a man who really wants to know the truth and follow it. If he believes this message, well... I'm going to give it a serious hearing and then believe the message as well. And again, those secondary and tertiary listeners as we share the gospel, maybe with some people who are mocking us, but over here in the corner is someone who is considering it and accepting it and recognizing it because they have grown tired of groping in the dark and they recognize light when they see it. Instead of shielding their eyes from it and squinting, they... Embrace it. Brother, and we have to recognize we have a powerful message with the resurrection. And it is on the scale of the unbelievable. But it is what men want so badly. And they need to hear it badly. And we need to be put it out there. Eternal life. That's the offer. Put it out there. Get that hearing. Say the radical thing. Make the, the powerful statement that God, of God's truth, just, just put it out there. God can do that. God can do that. God can do that. Because he can. And he has. But be ready, because once they hear what that means in their life, many will take offense at the very thing that they are actually were groping for. And they've just stopped groping. Men need to seek the Lord, and they are. But they're in the dark. He's not far away from them. But if we don't go to them with the gospel, he becomes that much farther away from them. And how sad would be the state if we discovered that someone spending eternity in the lake of fire was a fingertip away from the truth if we had just gone one step closer to them with the gospel. So we are called to this missionary endeavor. When we talk about serving Christ because of the power of the resurrection, this is what it entails. That we have the greatest message on earth with the most incredible, and yet very credible, <laughs> full of evidence, faith, that could transform lives like no other from the one true and living God. And we need to bring men to that point of you decide. 
Will you accept him or reject him? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this opportunity to look into this powerful truth. And Lord, we rejoice so much in that one who has brought us this knowledge that we could consider it and one day accept it. Whether it be parents or pastors or Sunday school teachers or word of life Moana workers, whatever in our history. Lord, we thank you for them. Thank you for your spirit to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. When we were groping, someone came near with light that we could embrace it. Lord, we do pray for our Acquaintances, some in our very homes, our workplaces, our schools, and our neighborhoods, who are groping like we once were. That we might confront them with the knowledge of the truth. That they might repent as God desires and trust in the one who is dead and yet lives. And we'll live forevermore. It's in his name we pray.